The Offseason Podcast is presented by Leinenkugels. Since 1867, Leinenkugels has been brewing some of the most delicious, refreshing beers around. Right now, get yourself a Snowdrift Vanilla Porter. It's a fuller-bodied brew with hints of cocoa, coffee, and caramel that's brought out by roasted malts and aged in real vanilla. The Leinenkugels Snowdrift Vanilla Porter is smooth and creamy, making it ideal for any time. So raise one to Leinenkugels. Welcome to the Liney side. That's Jacob Leinenkugel Brewing Company, Chippewa Falls, Wisconsin. Please enjoy your Lineys responsibly. A lot of Lions talk on the show today. We are back once again. Uh, a little more time between episodes as we uh, navigate through quarantine still, but uh, Brad and Blake will join us to talk about the Lions and uh, some other news from uh, the video game world that Blake and I will spend a couple minutes on. If Brad wants to jump in, uh, he can. And then uh, we'll talk about some of the games that have been on ESPN 100.9 FM during quarantine with the uh, throwback series and then what's coming up. Some fun games to reminisce about. So we'll do that in quick hits to wrap up the show. So without ep- without further ado, this week's episode of the Offseason Podcast. ESPN 100.9 FM presents the Off-Season Podcast, recorded every week inside the ESPN 100.9 FM studios, high atop Dow Diamond. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, or at ESPN1009.com. It is the off-season podcast. Matt DeVries, Blake Falling, and Brad Tunney with you, coming to you through Zoom, through voice memos. However we have to get a podcast done these days, uh, we're happy to do it for you. So we're back here on the podcast on your local sports leader. So I do want to talk Lions, guys, and I know you guys do too. The NFL schedule was out yesterday. Blake said the Lions will go 0-16, so I do want to talk about that. Um we haven't had a chance to talk about the NFL draft yet, so we will talk uh, about some of the Lions selections and what we think about that. But I want to start off uh, with a brief recap. Um, you guys were thrust into the spotlight this week as uh, you had to dust off the microphones uh, with the radio station and with the loons. You guys did loons versus whitecaps, uh, but it was virtually with MLB The Show Um There was some skepticism going in. We weren't sure how it was going to turn out. Um, And I think the the final product was was pretty cool. And it was a lot of fun for for us to put together and and for me to sit back and just watch as a baseball fan. But I'm curious to hear how you guys thought the the process went to, to broadcast. And I guess, Brad, we'll start with you. It was, uh, once the game started, felt more routine than, I guess it... I thought it was going to like it just felt like we were watching a game at Dow Diamond almost and it was just watching the pitches and calling balls in play and talking about some of the players it felt somewhat normal it felt more normal because I was keeping a scorebook so you know it just it was like you never never stopped and it's just like it always is when you call an opening day game it doesn't feel like there's been you know six months between the final day of the regular season of the year prior and then opening day of the current year so keeping score and calling the game you always feel like oh I haven't done this in like seven months but 
it just feels like you're picking up right where you left off the year before baseball is weird like that it felt very different for me pretty much the opposite of everything <laughs> you just said uh it was fun <laughs> i think the show did most of the work for us in putting the game to 11 innings because that was kind of insane not really what i expected uh, i couldn't really see the ball for most of the game so that made yeah. it a little bit a little yeah. bit interesting couple times there was an out i thought it was a hit or vice versa so people probably laughed at me for that um i didn't have a score book so my notes kind of looked like they were made by some serial killer because they were just all <laughs> over the place uh but i would definitely do it again i mean it was baseball it was the first live sport since we didn't know the outcome i counted as a live sport first live sport i saw in a month and a half almost two months so it was enjoyable yeah, I think what what was interesting is this all started because, you know, you saw the Players League with Major League Baseball and they started, you know, putting together uh, some broadcasts. And obviously the Twitch community and the video game community has been streaming video games for years. So, you know, th- this has been kind of new territory for me personally on the back and behind the scenes trying to put some of this together. And then um, our colleagues and friends in Fort Wayne with the Tin Caps have done an excellent job putting together some of these MLB The Show games. And whether the stay-at-home order or whatnot is any different down in Indiana, they might have access to their studio at the ballpark, but that was something that we didn't have the luxury of. So I think in future games, if we do want to do this, my goal would be to increase the picture quality because I think that was something that maybe forced you guys to to struggle a little bit through broadcasting the game. But then as as a fan, just watching... I'd like to try and up the quality a little bit. But I did think it was fun, Brad, that we were able to have Miguel Cabrera in the game. Casey Mize was the starter for the Whitecaps. And, you know, just to have that ability to to kind of have some fun with it. Um, and then did you guys cheat? Did you guys look ahead or did you watch it as it was happening in real time? The only thing we looked ahead on was before the first pitch. So was there a national anthem? Where were the starting lineups? Uh, was there some form of introduction? How much time were we going to have to cover before first pitch? But other than that, we were watching in real time, yeah. The other thing that we mentioned, too, was we knew how long the file was. So when we were in the ninth inning and the file still had another you know, 15, 20 minutes on it, it was like, okay, feels like it's going to extras. But I, I didn't really – you still didn't really know. It's not like we knew. Uh, that there was going to be something that went to extras. I was worried that Blake was going to look ahead because uh, what? Just, he was asking questions. You were asking questions and you just were like, uh, you know, what was the final score? Or Before the broadcast, you seemed very inquisitive. So I was wondering maybe Blake would just click right ahead to see what the final score was to be prepared. <laughs> okay, first of all, I say no spoilers more than anybody in this group combined, okay? Second of all, I'm just an inquisitive person. I didn't really think about not trying to spoil the game, but once that was brought to my attention, I was like, yeah, I'm all in. No spoilers whatsoever. I knew that there was time left on the file, as Brad said, but I was still surprised at how it went down. So I think that made it more fun. I couldn't have looked ahead even if I wanted to because Brad was controlling the video. There yeah. you go. Okay. Uh, well, I'm glad you guys enjoyed it. I appreciated you guys going in with an open mind. I think it was cool. Um, 
I've the thought has crossed my mind to do a, a return trip to Comerica Park and maybe have sort of the same teams or maybe change up the lineups a little bit and have the two teams play again. Or maybe we'd play the Lansing Lugnuts because we all know the Blue Jays have a ton of great former Lugnuts on their roster right now. So that could be a really fun broadcast to do. But we'll, we'll see how it shakes out. Maybe one another one uh, in, in a couple weeks. So I want to get into the schedule release with the NFL. Happened on Thursday. Obviously, it was a big night for sports fans just because they're starving for any sort of new information or positivity. We don't even know if these games are going to be able to be played in September and October, whether fans will be in attendance or not. Uh, it certainly seems unlikely that that's going to happen. Uh, but maybe the games do get played in some form or fashion. And the Lions schedule does come out. And uh, picked third in the NFC North by some projections. And they're projected to go 8-8. Eight and eight. Did anything jump out to you? When looking at the schedules, did you see any of the schedule release videos that every NFL team seemed to put together now these days? I didn't watch any of the videos because now that everybody does it, they're all kind of the same in some way or another. Uh, a couple of teams incorporated donations to cities that they're going to be playing in this year, which I thought was really cool. The Saints did that, and I think a couple other teams did something similar to that. So that was nice. Specifically for the Lions, I mean... Every year it seems like we say they have a tough schedule because the Lions suck, so every other team seems better than them. No primetime games. Them and the Redskins are the only two teams not on primetime. So save the country, you know, some grief of having to watch the Lions, I guess, besides the Thanksgiving game. Uh, tough schedule, and uh, it's not going to go well for Matt Patricia. I had a, I had one initial thought in that, so poor year for the Lions last year, obviously only three wins. And, you know, the way the NFL scheduling works is typically poor teams get better schedules the following year. The league is built for teams to move towards the middle. It's built on parity. So they go 3-12-1 last year, and then you see the strength of schedule this year, which is pretty low compared to the rest of the league. Matt's got it on the rundown. The strength of schedule is 28th in the league, a 525 win percentage for their opponents from a year ago. And so, again, league built to go to the middle. A three-win team is expected to get an easier schedule than a 12-win team. Uh, the divisions are lined up that way. The only issue is that would all well be good if not for the teams that were really bad last year making drastic improvements coming into this season. So while Arizona was pretty bad last year, they have made a, a, a huge turnaround in the offseason to get better than what the strength of schedule should have shown for them. They had one of the best receivers in the league, and they also get year two from a rookie quarterback and a head coach, and giving that now second-year quarterback an all-pro wide receiver. So they have gotten way better than what their lined-up schedule strength should be. And then Tampa Bay, a team who was only a seven-win team last year, who should be favorable on the schedule, or at least is built to be favorable on the schedule, just added Tom Brady and Rob Gronkowski. So those two games that are supposed to be games that allow the Lions to come back towards the middle, allow them to get one or maybe two wins, become much harder than they were supposed to be laid out. And that happens all the time. And there are some teams that were really good last year that should be difficult opponents this year that got worse, uh, the Colts maybe, for instance. But even then, they get a quarterback now. They get Phillip Rivers now as opposed to Jacoby Brissett. So they've gotten better as a sub-500 team from a year ago. Can you Sounds guys hear like the squeaking? Some, 
Yeah, we've got some squeaky toys from yeah, some of the dogs making them. an appearance. That's yeah. great. No, that's part of doing a podcast in quarantine, no doubt. We're not Bill Simmons over here. Uh, yeah, so in the NFC North, the Packers are projected. I mean, this is all very preliminary, obviously. Packers projected to go 11-5, and five, Vikings 10-6. and six. Then you've got the Lions at 8-8 eight and eight, and the Bears at 7-9. and nine. Only two home games in the first two months of the season. They play home against Chicago on the 13th, and then they get the Saints uh, before their bye week on October 4. And then they don't, they're not at home until the Colts come back on November 1st. So only two home games in the first two months of the season. Four of your first six are on the road. The silver lining is you do get the Packers at Lambeau in September, so you avoid any sort of frigid temperatures or snow. But the fact of the matter is you still have to play Aaron Rodgers at Lambeau. That's always almost going to be a loss. And you guys mentioned it, no primetime games right now on the schedule, although the Tampa Bay game in Week 16 is likely to be flexed into some sort of primetime um, or, or the best chance because it is Tom Brady. Maybe he's playing for a spot in the playoffs. Um, that that could be something that um, that changes with the primetime schedule. But um, at first glance, I guess, Blake, I know you said 0-16 yesterday tongue-in-cheek, but... Um, I would I would say that probably eight and eight might be a fair assessment. Just you never know the way some of these things are going to shake out with with how the rosters and injuries, quarterbacks can go down. You know, big players. But I would say fair assessment. You know, eight and eight, especially with the back end of the schedule loaded with with some home games that can maybe benefit the Lions. You know, into November and December. I've got my prediction, my gut twenty second look through the schedule prediction. If you want to hear it, please five and eleven. Yeah, wins Ouch. versus the Bears at Jacksonville versus Indianapolis versus Washington versus Minnesota. There you go. Okay, Not so eight and eight. You've got a you've got a loss uh, at Carolina under a first year head coach without Cam Newton and Teddy Bridgewater as a first year starter. You've got a loss at Atlanta. And the Falcons haven't really been that great. I know they pick up Todd Gurley, but you never know what's going to happen. And Matt Ryan certainly hasn't proven it down in Atlanta. That's interesting. Brad, I, I don't know if you have a number, but does that sound feasible? 5-11 and 11 more so than 8-8? Eight and eight? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a 5-11, and 6-10 and 10 schedule, and it frankly comes down to how good can Matt Stafford be for the defense. Um, saying that because this was a bottom-feeding defense a year ago, 28th in DVOA, bottom third in pro football focus team rankings, and just overall we know the defense struggled and they got worse this offseason on paper, losing a pro bowl and at one point an all-pro cornerback in Darius Slay and replacing him with a rookie to be a guy that you hope to cover, Devontae Adams and Steph Diggs, or and Adam Thielen, and, and you want him to cover number one receivers in the league. And I know last year, three wins, Matt Stafford hurt, defense struggling, but I don't see any signs where the defense got better this offseason. And if you can't be a top half defense, your offense is going to have to be otherworldly to get you to 500. I, I just don't know how there's a way this team gets to 500, especially with the schedule that we just discussed. On paper, it should be easy because of how bad they were a year ago. But the teams that are supposed to be bad, they get Arizona and Tampa Bay, who were both bottom half teams in their division a year ago, and they both made market improvements. I think it's a five six win schedule. That's got to be a. It's got to be tough to stomach for for a Lions fan to hear that. But I guess for the for the people that do want change at Ford Field, maybe this is 
a silver lining that there's an opportunity where there will be some change after this season. Then if you don't get a favorable schedule, you have an early bye week, which isn't great. You've only got four weeks and then you're on the bye on October 11. So, um, you know, maybe there is, there is a chance where some things might be different. You know, there is an opportunity with, with the Jeff Okuda and you've got Julian Aquara and we're going to get into the draft in a little bit, but a couple early round picks used on the defense you get deandre swift at running back this offense could be great if everybody stays healthy and everybody plays up to their potential and i know you can say that about any nfl team but you know for for a unit that maybe went begging a little bit if you can get a healthy quarterback in in a stafford that we've seen before maybe this is a team that can try and just outscore other teams and, and that may be fool's gold in the nfl brad but maybe that is what this offense and this this team is going to have to do try and just outscore opponents I think I think it has the makings to be a top 10 offense in the league but again it it rests on one Matt Stafford's ability to stay upright and then to stay healthy has the offensive line made necessary improvements I think that's still in question until we see it done the right tackle that they signed Hala 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 the guy we can't say his name of you know is he a, a true starter? He was not with Philadelphia, and he's is he going to make that next step? Uh, does TJ Hawkinson become the reliable blocking, catching tight end that we hope of? Is DeAndre Swift an actual running back that can take three down workloads? Um, on Johnson was not that guy. Javid Best was not that guy. They used countless second-round picks on guys during Stafford's career to be three-down backs. I don't know if there's any reason to believe that all of a sudden DeAndre Swift is that guy when it hasn't been done historically. Uh, wide receiving group is okay. Still not the best unit in the in the division, I don't think, but they were a top-20 offense last year. Can they make the jump to becoming a top-15, top-10 offense? Possibly, but but even then, it's a it's a still like a six win roster. And another thing to mention there is you mentioned on the defense having to trust a rookie in one of the most important positions. Same thing happens on the offense with Jonah Jackson from Ohio State. He's going to have yeah. to come in right away and replace Graham Glasgow. And sure, he was great in college. Only allowed ten pressures on pass blocking attempts, over four hundred and sixty of them, but. You wonder how much that's going to translate into the NFL when he's going to be relied on from day one with a limited offseason. I mean, so many experts are saying you shouldn't rely on rookies this year because of we don't know what kind of contact they're going to be able to have with the team in person before they have to play. And this is the year that the Lions need the rookies in three key spots to contribute right, right away. And I, I don't think we should have that expectation. Yeah, and, and to that point, too, it's just first newcomers starting, not just rookies, but mm-hmm. new guys in important positions. Linebacker Jamie Collins will be a starter. Julian Okwara, the rookie that we just talked about, is going to play, what, third-man rotation-type snap counts at, at an end position. Um, uh, Vitae at the right tackle, fresh face, protecting Matt Stafford. Rookie Jonah Jackson at right guard, so a fresh right side of the line. Rookie running back just a lot of newcomers to rely on and we'll talk about those newcomers coming up in just a second we haven't had a chance to talk draft the the guys have mentioned a lot of these names that that may be relied upon uh in 2020 if in fact we do have an nfl season in some capacity in the fall so do you want to talk lions draft in just a little bit just getting started here on the offseason podcast 
Back here on the Offseason Podcast, presented every single week and every single episode by Line of Kugels and distributed by J.P. O'Sullivan. Matt DeVries, Blake Froling, Brad Tunney with you. Coming to you from different areas, Blake up north in Sheboygan, Brad and myself uh, in quarantine here in Midland. But uh, Lions draft happened uh, a couple weeks back. Uh, no real surprises, I guess. The big surprise came in the second round, but uh, Blake, Jeff Okuda from, cor- from Ohio State, the cornerback, um, we were wondering if the Lions were going to trade out of the number three spot. They don't, and they take the guy that everyone was expecting. Filling a huge need, can't say many people should have been surprised when they take him there. No, not at all. Maybe surprised that they couldn't trade back, but post-draft, it seems like a lot of the reasoning has been a lot of the quarterback needy teams were okay with whatever whatever quarterback was going to fall to them. After Joe Burrow, it seemed like they didn't see much difference between Tua, Justin Herbert, and Jordan Love. Uh, I know the Chargers were content with whoever they got. The Dolphins were. So it seemed like the Lions didn't have many suitors for to get the value of a number three pick. So they went with the safe choice in Jeff Okuda. Um, I mean, he was the best player available in a big position of need. Uh, I just don't think the Lions can rely on him to be a number one quarterback or cornerback in year one because of what we talked about in the last uh, segment where he's just not going to have the practice reps we don't think as of right now and so with everything being so separated you just wonder how much of an impact he can have relative to the draft position and brad i was I was really happy and surprised that they went DeAndre Swift in the second round. Um, I just think in, in today's NFL, yeah, you don't want to have to use too high of a draft pick on a running back, but you can never have too many of them. And I think that that is a position, especially with the the uncertainty and the question mark around on Johnson. I think going running back, getting what many thought was a first-round talent in DeAndre Swift out of Georgia – in the second round, I know they needed help on defense and they go back to back offensive linemen in the middle rounds, but I loved the, the swift pick in the second round. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a wait and see pick. It's sexy. It's flashy. It's a running back. But again, as we talked about in the previous segment, I mean, we can look back to how many second round running backs the, um, the lines have drafted during Stafford's tenure even. And it's, now DeAndre Swift joining Kerryon Johnson, joining Amir Abdullah, joining Javid Best, um, and I mean other skill position guys that they've added in the second round too during his tenure. Titus Young, Ryan Broyles, like none of those guys have done anything in the NFL worth worth much. So you 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 use a second round pick on a skill position player when we've seen the Lions historically have success when they don't use that pick on a skill position player. Uh, Darius Slay comes to mind. Ashawn Robinson comes to mind recently. And there were obviously other needs, specifically on the defensive end, that you you needed to fill. And we all hope that DeAndre Swift becomes that guy. We all know Carrion Johnson is most likely not that guy. I just, I know it's revisionist at this point, but it's frustrating that you just re- continue that in three years you have to use two second-round picks on running backs because all of a sudden the guy that you drafted now two years ago, which is not that long ago, is all of a sudden not the guy. 
in two years, is DeAndre Swift not the guy again? And you keep recycling in and out running backs that you think will be saviors, and and they just they they haven't been, and they haven't been since maybe Kevin Jones in the second round in '04. Yeah, well, this admits failure for Carryon Johnson. Basically, this is the Lions front office saying, "Hey, we put a lot of resources in this guy, and he's just not going to be the future. So we're going to put even more resources." into a position that has become very devalued. I mean, you only see, we're shocked every time a running back gets paid, basically, and not shocked when a former All-Pro gets cut unceremoniously. So the fact that they fail on their high picks at a position that's being devalued and keep going back to the well, I mean, it's, it's kind of typical Lions, and they need DeAndre Swift to be a star for this not to be a failure of a pick, considering the shortcomings everywhere else. Now, I'll say this too, though. Like, DeAndre Swift, I think, in previous years gets taken in the first round. I think the narrative has shifted so much on running backs that there was uh, it was poor market efficiency to draft a running back in the first round. And after so many years, teams now obviously know that. It took some teams uh, longer to kind of realize that first-round running backs, unless they're the Zeke Elliott, Saquon Barkley's of the world in the first round, need to be drafted. But now it's like, okay, every team knows it, and does there become a market efficiency? Is there an efficiency in drafting a running back that should have gone in the first round in the second round? And if you become the team to actually go get that value, um, does it reverse now? And I don't know, maybe, maybe it doesn't happen that soon, but you know, DeAndre Swift most likely goes in the first round maybe last year, two years ago, three years ago. Um, you know, this is the first year in how many years that a running back didn't go in the first round? Mm-hmm. Well, outside, so, of, outside of the little scat back that went to KC. And what's, what's strange is then, and maybe this is a returner pick in the fifth round, but Jason Huntley, the running back out of New Mexico State, I don't know why you would then draft yet another running back and if you're drafting him in the fifth round and he's going to be exclusively a special teams player, I hope they have some sort of plan for him. Otherwise, that seems like I know it's the fifth round, but still, there's still value in every round of the draft. you got to make sure you're, you're getting the most bang for your buck. So I don't love that play down there in the fifth round. But we don't have to spend too much more time on it. Did anything else stick out to you about what the Lions did or maybe what other teams in the division. I know the whole Aaron Rodgers saga with the quarterback situation in Green Bay was a, was a hot-button issue in the first round, but uh, anything else with this Jonah Jackson, Logan Stenberg, back-to-back guard selection in the middle rounds, or you get Cephas, the wide receiver out of Wisconsin, uh, in the later rounds? I'll, I'll touch on the Okuda pick, I guess. It's just – I don't know if it's funny or what, but, I mean, how many times on this show did we discuss the fact that oh, the Lions are interested in a quarterback, they're interested in a quarterback, oh, they're going to take Tua, and even local media spinning propaganda at, at a certain point, that that was like a legitimate option. And and we had to discuss on this show how many times, like, look, that's just not happening. It is completely ignorant to think that the, the staff, that uh, the Lions would take a quarterback at three. Uh, it doesn't help you now, it doesn't help you in the future, it doesn't help you at all. And then even... Even fans, after the fact, were frustrated that they didn't draft a quarterback. And I just, I don't understand the reasoning. I, I, I understand the thought process in that it's like, okay, we've had Stafford for how long? He hasn't done anything. You know, he's only gotten us to the playoffs more times in the last eight years than we went to in the last 20 years before him. But, 
you know, I, I get it. Like, oh, it's Tua. We could we be better than Stafford. It, it just makes absolutely no financial or structural sense on the roster. And I think, look, you can point the finger at Rob Quinn in the in the administration for this, but I think good teams, teams that know, and organizations that know how to spin narrative going into a draft would have somehow traded back here. The fact that they got no offers to trade back is is frustrating and it's questionable in that they didn't play this correctly. If they legitimately wanted to trade back, they didn't do it the right way. They didn't do it the right way by pushing narratives into the local media that they were interested in a quarterback because it was so obvious that they weren't going to draft a quarterback. That was not the play to try to get teams interested in the number three pick. I think they misplayed it if the goal was to trade back. I, I, I can accept that to an extent, but you also got to look at, a, at the way the talent shook out and where everybody was, was projected to pick and then look at how it played out in the draft itself. There were no picks in the, or there were no trades in the top ten at all. So right. there were no, there was this was probably a bad year to try and trade out to try and get something else. I think it was just kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place, and they eventually were just like, well, we can't move back. I guess we just got to take take the guy that that's there. It very well could have not been possible, but I just don't like the process of the plan to try to trade back threatening that you were going to take a quarterback when that was obviously not anyone with half a brain knew that that wasn't the play. The play should have somehow been to uh, convince people that picks four, five, and six, you know, that, that the Dolphins were talking to you. Like, that's what you leak. That the Chargers were talking to you. That, that you were close to a deal with the Chargers. That way the Dolphins feel like they got a jump. Not that, like, oh, we're going to take Tua. Like, that's not the information you leak to local media if you legitimately think there's a chance for you to trade back. It's yeah. sounding like mm-hmm. no matter what they would have done, it really wouldn't have changed much. I I, I don't know if it's worth getting mad about. They sure. weren't going to get the same value. I think if there were a trade at maybe seven or eight, and you say, well, the Lions maybe could have tried to sweeten the deal and get them to jump up to three, fine. But it seemed like people were content with any of those quarterbacks after Joe Burrow, and there wasn't anything the Lions could do to, to change that. And at the end of the day, I mean, you obviously you see all of the news that comes out after the draft. It sounds like they got a, a, a heck of a cornerback anyways. I yeah. mean, the, the best talent out there, um, you know, it seems like he's a very smart football player and smart person in general had you know was very did very well in school at Ohio State and and seems like a very motivated player so even if you only have him for his rookie deal and you have him for three or four years it sounds like they did get a a pretty solid cornerback at at number three regardless at a at a very big position of need arguably the biggest position if you're going to trade away Darius Slay for for a third and a fifth you got to try and replace him somehow and and last thing screw all the Packer fans (laughs) screw them talking smack about Lions fans. I'm not even really that big of a Lions fans, but a Lions fan, but like clean up your own kitchen before you come in talking about how bad the Lions franchise in. I, I get you guys win more games. Packers, you know, they win more games. They go to the playoffs more often. You guys have had two of maybe the, the best 10 quarterbacks in the NFL's history for two decades and won one Super Bowl. One Super Bowl with Aaron Rodgers and Brett Favre and then you somehow think it's a good idea. Well, well, yeah, but the second one came in 22 years. I said two decades. I'm sure. Okay, but you're cherry-picking a little bit. You were That's, implying that yeah. Brett Favre didn't win a Super Bowl. I understand that, but I'm cherry-picking 20, <laughs> 22 years. 
one Super Bowl. It's cherry. Yeah, I mean it's it's not. Yeah, it's cherry picked. But at the end of the day, I think we're all gonna sit here and say you needed to do something more with Aaron Rodgers. Like, it's, what is it's your? A, I mean, we've all seen those those lists of uh, Hall of Fame potential quarterbacks with touchdown throws to first round picks, and Aaron Rodgers has two to Mercedes Lewis. Mm-hmm. This is kind yeah. of similar to the talent that Kevin Garnett got in Minnesota, which has historically been the worst any superstar in any sport has ever gotten. And maybe Aaron Rodgers is, is a close second there. I just, I don't get it. I don't get it. Grass is always greener, and hopefully Jordan Love is a beast for them. But Also, any fan base that finds itself trying to compare themselves to the Lions has a problem. Because no one should have to compare themselves to the Lions, unless you're the Browns. Also, uh, I know this is like very much what the Packers did at the end of the Brett Favre era, but is Aaron Rodgers really that close to being done that we need to think about it, drafting his successor? It's a similar situation in that they're the same age. Brett Favre had just come off, I think, a Pro Bowl year. Aaron Rodgers obviously had a great year a year ago, lowest interception percentage in the league. But like the difference is... Going into this year, the Packers then won five games after they drafted Aaron Rodgers. Do we think the Packers are a five-win football team when they came minutes away from the Super Bowl this year? Right, right. I mean, they were a win away from the Super Bowl, and they used their first-round pick on a guy who is not going to play for two or three years. Makes no sense. That's the hard thing to stomach with that. Absolutely. So... Lots of Lions talk. We take a step back and, and, and get a little less serious with, throughout the rest of the show, but still, a, a lot of Lions stuff, and at the end of the day, we kind of have to put a caveat on all of this, and we don't know what the NFL is going to look like in September. We don't know if we're going to have the NFL in September. I think we're all you know hopeful, and we wish that we can have it as long as it's a, safe to do so, but you know it obviously gives us something to think about and look forward to, and hopefully we're we're not talking about empty rosters and empty schedules that don't end up happening. The so. Jets not selling tech- tickets. Does that make sense? No, you take uh, people's money. Take it no matter what, and then make them okay, fight we, you to get it back. Oh, wow. That's, wow. Corporate that's Blake entered the chat. I'm just saying. No if you're talking Capitalist about from the Blake Jets, entered the chat. If you're talking about it from their perspective, that's what you got to do. I, I mean, I think it's a, it was overly prudent, honestly. It's weird. But, I mean, I guess. I mean, at the end of the day, you sell the tickets and people want to buy them. You have to give them a refund if you don't end up playing the games anyways. you got to come up with something else. So it's uh, it's the same situation the Loons are in right now, to be frank. I mean, we're supposed to be playing baseball right now. And, you know, the ticket department is having to scramble every single day to come up with, you know, new solutions and, and new ways to, to kind of plan. And a much larger discussion that we won't have on this show, but with the whole – player negotiation deal going going on between major and minor league baseball no one knows what 2021 in minor league baseball is going to look like so we cannot plan for that either so it's just a very very strange time uh in in sports all all together so uh we'll roll along next off-season podcast we're back here on the off-season podcast we're presented every single week and every single episode is presented by line and kugels and it's distributed locally by our friends at J.P. O'Sullivan. Matt DeVries, Blake Froling, Brad Tunney with you. Blake up in Sheboygan. Uh, Brad and I here in Midland coming to you via Zoom. Uh, and so check us uh, out wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, that can be iTunes, SoundCloud, 
Um, ESPN1009.com is, uh, is the hub where you go and check out all of the, uh, the past episodes and links to subscribe and, and all of that. So uh, check us out there as well. Going to take a step back and uh, some news for uh, sports fans maybe of a, of a younger generation came out uh, last week twofold. One regarding golf, Blake, and one regarding football. Uh, we'll start with the golf one. And a bit of background. So in past years, EA Sports, before Tiger Woods kind of fell off the face of the earth for a few years, um, so to speak, he had one of the most popular video games in the world. And it was Tiger Woods PGA Tour Golf. And it was the simulation of being a golfer, going on tour, and the whole bit. Everybody loved it. I think Blake and I probably bought it every single year because we loved the game. And then they... Tried to reboot the franchise with Rory McIlroy. It didn't really work, and we haven't had a golf game in a few years. Now, Blake, the PGA Tour announced this week that the 2K series, which has made the NBA version of the video game a overwhelming success, will now be attached to the PGA Tour, and PGA Tour 2K21 is set to be coming out. And I think that's uh, that's good news for a lot of us sports fans and, and fans who like sport games and specifically golf especially i think that that was exciting news to see yeah i think it's a big market that they could tap into and this could be very successful if they do it right because 2k has been historically great with basketball and then not so good with everything else their mlb game was terrible their nfl game got axed forever ago so it, they can be hit or miss and they need to do it right or else no one's going to buy a a golf 2k game ever again and they need to get all the big names they need to have the best graphics of any golf game because i have the rory mcelroy game still i still enjoy playing it and this 2k game is going to have such high expectations that it could really screw them over if they mess it up yeah on that note and brad i do want to get to you because i know you have an interesting story about tiger woods golf um Probably not going to have Tiger Woods in, in this game, uh, I'm, I'm expecting, just because of the, the rights that they would have to pay to Tiger Woods himself to get in. Now, he may have some self-awareness to know that it would behoove him to be in this video game, regardless of what way he can get in it, but it would, it would make sense for Tiger Woods, the brand, to be in this game. But Brad, didn't you say when you were growing up, you would play this game before you would go off to school? You'd play like Tiger Woods against your dad? Or something like that. Is that true? Uh, yeah. I mean, I used to play some video games before school in the morning sometimes, and uh, my dad and I would maybe play nine or something. He uh, he used to love this game. It was the only video game he ever played outside of Pokemon Snap on the N sixty four. But uh, I I don't maybe maybe because I'm not a golfer, and maybe you guys are overstating it because you are golfers. I don't know how this game has success, to be honest with you, the 2K golf game. If if Tiger's not in it, there's no chance. It definitely hurts its chances if Tiger Woods is not in it. Like, yes, wh- I would what's the difference between this game and the Rory McIlroy game? At least the Royal Rory McIlroy game, McIlroy game had, like, prior years' confidence in the EA form of the game you're now mm. getting something brand new that is not tiger branded that is already an, a niche sport to begin with 
so not not to get too into the weeds, Brad, but this is a game that has existed in previous years. It's called Golf Club, um, and it's a game that has existed on the systems, and the latest edition is called Golf Club 2019. And one of the biggest draws to this game is they don't have a, a partnership to have players in the game, so it's all fake players in the game, but there is the ability to create golf courses. So like Augusta National is in this game because a fan has taken the time to create Augusta National in the game and that has made it a, a success in the golf community community specifically. So they're not necessarily starting from scratch and this game has reportedly been in development since 2018. So they've been working on this partnership for a long time um and are there going to be real golf courses in it or just user created ones? Real golf Oh, okay. No, there, there are there will be real golf courses, but the there was the ability to always add more than what was originally in the game, which was always a big push, and you know that's why the the Tiger Woods game that was the Masters edition a few years ago will still sell on eBay for a hundred dollars because it's the only video game to ever have Augusta National in it, and for people that love golf, um, you know that was that was a big pull for it. I think there's still a market for it though because. You want the Jordan Spieth of the world. You want Brooks Kepka in the game. You want all these newer, younger golfers. You've never been able to see them in a video game. I think there's Ricky Fowler. There, there's a ton of these names that have never had a chance to be in a game like that. Okay, so do this golf game, but have there be partner with developers in each state and have the developers in each state create the, the top 10 courses in every state and be able to buy expansion packs based on where you live. So you can play, if you're in Michigan, the Polecat and Arcadia Bluffs, and maybe you, you like be able to buy state expansion packs as a microtransaction in the game if you want to. That would be amazing. And the, the biggest thing I look for in a golf game is the courses, not the players right. themselves. Same. When I, when I played Tiger Woods, I didn't really care about the players. I mean, I, I cared that Tiger was the branding on it. You know, subconsciously, you don't realize how important that is. And then, yeah, you wanted to play the courses. I wanted to play the courses that my father talked about playing in real life when he was, uh, when he was playing golf, playing at Pebble, and him talking me through all these shots that he had at Pebble when he played there multiple times, and Torrey Pines, and all these other courses, that, and TPC, and yada, yada. I think it'd be cool the expansion packs though. I'd 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 get that if I could play at Curry East in the shoot a fifteen. You play you play a Wabu's run. So the other piece of news in the video game world was the ruling or the acceptance by the NCAA when they came out and said it supports a rule change allowing student athletes to profit from their name, image, and likeness so long as the college or university they attend does not pay them directly. So that obviously means they can do endorsements saying that I'm so-and-so and and I play football for the University of Michigan, uh, which is a huge step. The the NCAA has staunchly been opposed to this for years. Uh, Now, this doesn't mean that there's a clear road to the NCAA football video game franchise coming back but this is a step in the right direction, Blake. And I think that there is there is now a small, small, small light at the end of the tunnel where there may be a road back a few years down uh, the line where the, the very lucrative and very successful NCAA football franchise in the video game world might be able to come back. 
what is the smallest unit of measure I can use in terms of moving towards getting the NCAA football game? Because that is what I would use for this. I remember okay. I remember the NCAA making a committee a couple of years ago talking about similar issues, and we were all excited about their findings, and then nothing happened. I think this is the NCAA trying to get everybody off their back saying, hey, hey, we believe in this too, you know? we're good with this. We're just going to take 10 years to actually make it a real thing. So it's one thing for the NCAA to say they support this, but they're not making any concrete steps in this direction. So and even if they do the name, image, and likeness, they still have to make agreements. Then the question is, do they have to make agreements with individual players to get in the game? Because they can't just do it with the schools because the schools don't handle the players' name, image, and likeness under this agreement. So there are a lot more complex issues that come with this in terms of getting a video game out there. Now, personally, if I were a student athlete, I would say, I don't need any money. Just give me a free copy of the game and I'm okay with it because that's how badly I would want the game back. But I am not every student athlete. So I think this is just the NCAA trying to get some good PR and they're going to try to move as slowly as possible to make this reality. So, Brad, I'll give you the floor in a second. I did have a very lengthy conversation with a buddy of mine trying to come up with a solution as to what it would take to try and get the likenesses of players, college athletes in the game. And we threw around numbers and some percentages, and we got down to a singular figure of what each scholarship football player at the Division One level would get. And I wonder if it was enough. And I texted it to you guys. I said $650. If each player at the Division I level, from Trevor Lawrence down to Joe Bob, third-string linebacker at Austin P, they all get in the game and they all get the same amount of money, do you think that would be enough to get them in the game? And I, I, I'm, not, I'm, just, I'm not asking a rhetorical question. I'm just, you know, just curious. But, Brad, do you think there is a road back? Or would you care if there was a road back? Or do you think it's blown out of proportion? Um, I agree with pretty much everything that Blake said. To your point, uh, $650 to every player. Where where did that number come from in terms of the budget? Where would that number come from? I'm saying like in terms of the budget, if there's 125 college football teams and they got 50 kids. 80 kids. 80 kids. So there's a thousand so, kids, six hundred and fifty bucks. So you're talking what's six hundred and fifty thousand dollars? Six point five million dollars. Right. So where did that number come from? So I took the number of copies that the game sold and did the simple math as to how much each copy was sold, and then I gave ten percent of the revenue from sales of the game divided it by, I think, 85 scholarship players and 130 Division I football universities, and I got that number down to 650. There's around 11,000 and some change in guys uh, that would get payments, and then we were like, what do we do with walk-ons? Do they get paid because they're probably in the game? And what about in, in the old games, one AA schools were in the game as well, so what do we do with them? So it snowballed into a very large waste of time, but um, it was still – uh, an interesting thing to, to think about. Hmm. 
I, I mean, I think that should be enough. If you gave every player 650 bucks, yeah, I don't know why they're getting well, $0 right now. But well, the issue is... I was going to say, ahead, doesn't Trevor Lawrence have more value of being in the game than the yeah. backup linebacker from Austin P? Sure, but d- there's re- there's reciprocated value there in that Trevor Lawrence gains value as Trevor Lawrence by being in the game. Uh, his value goes beyond the $650 that he's going to make, which is almost worthless to him, I'm sure, anyway. I mean, he goes to school for free. I mean, guys like that, $650 doesn't really mean much. Um, which is my point. Who benefits more, just theoretically, if it was Trevor Lawrence we're talking about? The game or Trevor Lawrence? Don't people already know who Trevor Lawrence is, and he's already probably going to be a number one pick making millions of dollars? I mean, it's kind of like Tiger, correct. It's like Tiger but Woods th- not wanting to be in the golf game. Sure, there. It's not equal value to both parties, but would are there college athletes out there that would put up a stink about not being given equal value? And, and how do you create equal value? Um, would there be some college football players that would say, "Hey, don't put me in the game"? Probably. Does that ultimately hurt uh, sales of the game? Probably not. If Trevor Lawrence and Joe Burrow. And a couple other super superstars in college football said, "Hey, I don't want to be in the game." The game would still do just as well. If it became where twenty five percent of the players and they were all star players said, "Hey, I don't want to be in the game. I don't feel like I'm getting enough value." That's when it hurts. So you'd you'd have to draw the line. I think it makes more sense to pinpoint players you want in the game. I think the easier path is the NCAA allowing guys to make money off their own likeness, and then EA going to the players they want in the game, going to the quarterbacks of every institution. You get every quarterback. You get, if there are star running backs, you get first-team all-conference guys from the year before. I don't care if you get the right guard for Central Michigan. I don't care if you get, frankly, anyone other than the quarterback at max schools, unless they're going to be a first-round pick. And just pay those guys whatever you negotiate with them, and I think it would be worth it. But there's no need to give, like you were saying, Jim, Bob, whoever, third string, D-end for Austin P money. Uh, I think it makes more sense just to negotiate with the players you want because ultimately when you're playing the game, there's no difference between Joe Johnson playing right guard for Central Michigan and right guard number 74 being there. And I think there's the stumbling block here is there's no union for NCAA athletes. Right. It'd be easier to just negotiate with a union that manages the likeness of all 11,500 Division I college football players. That would be the easiest way. Or, you know, better yet, there's, a co- there's an NCAA athlete union <clears throat> in general, and they manage the likeness of every single college athlete at the Division I level. Then there's a road back for the NCAA baseball game an NCAA basketball game, and an NCAA Olympic sports game, or whatever. I mean, you could could go on and on with all of that. With this, does it mean that these guys can sign agents? No, it's just if a company says, hey, I want you to be on my billboard, here's $1,000, a college player can now say, okay, I accept that without needing an agent. Right, but... But anyone should be able to get an agent to help negotiate value. So if if the NCAA is saying you can benefit off your own likeness, but the thing is now instead of us taking advantage of you, the local car dealership is going to take advantage of you, then there's still no difference of them being taken advantage of. They need some they need a professional to negotiate what their value is as 
18-year-old kids because they don't know and they're still going to get taken advantage of without fair representation. Well, what Blake was alluding to is this isn't a rule change yet. They just came out and said, we're in favor of that. We'd like to talk about it and we think there's something that we can do with that. I'm sure there is going to be something where it says, well, just because I have an agent and I have representation doesn't mean I'm forfeiting my amateur status. Right, I'm like just, that would that would be the next I, step that I I could not see the NCAA as stupid and stingy and just somewhat evil in their practices that they are would be like, you know what? You guys are actually allowed to have agents now that could actually negotiate and agents could work together to form somewhat of a union and somewhat discuss what fair value is for what you're providing us. And this brings us all the way back to the beginning when I said this is the smallest increment of progress towards getting this done because of the can of worms we just opened. Yeah. Yes, but the NCAA hasn't had this sort of position before. They've always just said, no, we don't want to talk about that. These guys, these men and women are amateurs, and that's what it's going to be. They're always going to be amateurs. And now I think they're they're coming to grips with the fact that, listen, there is so much money at stake here. You need to at least allow the athletes some way to get some sort of compensation because you are making, as we saw with the cancellation of March Madness, $800 million with playing a tournament for a month. And the amount of money college football brings in is insane. So there, there just has to be some way where these athletes that are 18 to 22 years old, there has to be some way to at least give them a small piece of the pie. And, and how much changes when the NBA eventually becomes a full minor league system with the pathway program in the G League? when college basketball ultimately starts to really suffer. And, it, and it, the TV dollars won't suffer, those things won't suffer, but the talent is going to suffer in college basketball when there is a full pathway program with guys getting paid as 18-year-olds to be in NBA organizations or at least being in the path to do that. When you know guys are getting half a million dollars to be in the pathway program, they're not going to go get an education. Well, that all stops once you just get rid of the one-and-done rule. Then there is no minor leagues. Correct, and you can just send guys to the G League anyway, but the pathway program for now essentially does that without the one-and-done situation. Right, but it has only taken, what, two players so far from college basketball? It's going to take a decade of players going through it and then having success at the NBA level before these star players forego college. Because sure, you make money right away, but how many of these guys had their brands helped by going to college? Like Zion Williamson in the G League or Zion Williamson at Duke? Which one gets more attention? I mean, Zion is an interesting case. He was Zion before he got to Duke, but... Right. Uh, but I'm just saying. Yeah, I, I see your point in guys that yeah, guys that very well could need college branding to help them. But yeah, I mean we have we have so many decades of evidence with Kevin Garnett and Kobe Bryant and Tracy McGrady and guys that jumped straight from high school to the NBA and in this case the Pathway program. Maybe it would help them. I don't know. Quick hits is next. Final segment here on the Offseason Podcast, we're presented by Line & Kugels, and they are distributed by J.P. O'Sullivan here in the Great Lakes Bay region. So 
Appreciate all of their support of the podcast. Quick hits to wrap up the show. And Blake, I forgot to include it in the third segment. And maybe this is what you were trying to get to uh, before I wrapped up the discussion. But um, there was something that Jim Harbaugh came out with this week. He was in the news. He wrote an open letter and uh, it received a lot of attention. So I don't want to, I'd be remiss if I didn't uh, offer you the chance to get this in the discussion. Kind of random. Jim Harbaugh just kind of jumping into the news cycle. I respect it. Uh, basically doing the opposite of what a lot of coaches have been doing with all this news regarding player movement, the name, image, and likeness, things like that. A lot of coaches have been against it, trying to hold on to the current rules. Harbaugh kind of did the opposite, and he didn't really deal with name, image, and likeness, but he was more about player movement. Uh, He wants college football players to be able to declare for the draft after any season in college and not have to wait till three years removed from high school. He wants the rule to be if you're not taken within the first seven rounds or within the draft, if you're not picked, you can come back to school if you declared, as long as you don't accept money from an agent. Uh, And you can finish your degree at any time if you do leave school. So I thought most of what he said was made sense from a player's point of view. The NFL is going to hate it. And this would be an NFL rule that would have to change, not a college rule, because what NFL scout wants to then have to look at freshmen that didn't even play or played sparingly just makes it so much more difficult, similar to why the NBA changed the rule. I don't think this is going to happen, but I think it's an interesting idea. This is uh, refreshing to hear a non-Dabo Sweeney, Mike D'Antonio... Mike uh, D'Antonio. You like that? That's good. That was good. Uh, Just old man staring at the sun, get off my grass, you know, just dumb take. Uh, It's refreshing in that sense, but I'm also curious what the angle is here. Is there an angle from Harbaugh? And and if the angle is simply, look, I'm trying to be as pro-player as possible, he's obviously shown he's trying to be pro athlete pro player um trips abroad uh whatever it may be he tries to be as pro player as possible i just yeah i guess that's all it's refreshing i I don't i i would maybe this is a little naive but i would hope that he doesn't have to have some ulterior motive or some sort of angle or narrative that he's trying to push that's and that's exactly what people said on on social media, Brad. Exactly what you're saying. Every everyone loves playing for Jim Harbaugh. I mean, he gets criticism from fans for not beating Ohio State, and he even got it when he posted his open letter. I mean, that's all people care about sometimes is just the the results on the field. But he he gets a lot of really good talent. He cultivates talent. I mean, no better evidence than the NFL draft this year. Tons of Michigan guys were drafted, um, and guys like to play for him. So. It seems like he just has the best interest of the player in mind, and he's just bored like everybody else, thinking about ways to better improve college football. Another thing he mentioned in the letter was making every player have five years of eligibility and just getting rid of the redshirt rule, Uh, eliminate the the maximum number of scholarships a school is allowed to give out, and he would be in favor of a one-time transfer rule where a player doesn't have to sit out 
Mm-hmm. Um, the transfer rule is great. What? Why? Why just one time? What's the thinking? And every time we see it, it's always one time. Like, why can't they just? pick up and transfer like anybody else. And if you're doing a good job at your program, guys are going to want to stay there. Thus, they will not want to transfer. Well, I think a lot of, a lot of times players are compared to coaches here in that, well, coaches can transfer whenever the heck they want and they don't have to sit out a year. Players got to sit out a year, yada, yada. You don't very often see a head coach of a college football team coach three different teams in a four-year stretch. Right. So for there to be some equality of – you can't come onto campus as a freshman, switch to a different school as a sophomore, and then go flop to go play somewhere else as a senior. Like We're just not creating that big of a headache for tr- the transition process in college football. So you get a one-time thing, and it becomes a big decision in your college career. Uh, secondly, the lifting of scholarships, how does that work? How does that keep a level playing field? I'm not saying that it does. That's just something yeah. I think that, that was the only one do. that doesn't make sense. That was the only one that doesn't make sense to me. It just allows big money schools like Michigan to just hand out as many scholarships as they want because there's obviously a, a ton of two and three star kids. I'm sure running around the state of Michigan that would love to get a scholarship to go play at Michigan and then never play. Like right, it would allow schools like that to gobble up all the fringe talent and then right. it would allow Michigan one- to gobble up all the Michigan State talent. There you go. Maybe your, your Chippewas would be in in trouble. Brad doesn't claim the Chippewas, so let's not push that narrative at all. But uh, yeah, when they're good, I'll claim them. Mel, Mel, T- Mel was- Tucker changing that thought process, though. Brad Mel Tucker doing a good job early on. Not the five star guys, but building a solid class so far. All right, we'll see results. Okay. And then what was the first thing that you said on that three thing list? Uh, five years of eligibility for every player without. A right, that was shirt. the other thing. So. Initial reaction to that would be, I think the redshirt thing to me has always been like a fairness thing, meaning I miss a year, that's not fair to my eligibility. And for me at least, if everyone got five years and then all of a sudden I got hurt for one of those years and now I only have four and someone else gets five, it the redshirt thing to me has always been a fairness thing. I, I want equal opportunity compared to people who don't get hurt. And that's what you lose if everyone just gets five years. Well, he didn't specify if this also includes medical red shirts. He was just talking about normal red shirts, I gotcha. think. Because gotcha. eliminating medical red shirts wouldn't really make sense. Yeah, and that, Then okay. that wouldn't be fair. You're right. Yeah. Okay. All good thoughts. All good, all good discussions there. And even um, if Harbaugh does have an ulterior motive in this, does it really matter? Not necessarily. Yeah, screw him. That's why. Okay. <laughs> uh, okay, so let's get to the throwback series, and then we'll, we'll wrap up uh, the show for this time. It's not really every week, so until the next time we sit down and do one. Saturday, Brad, in the throwback series on 100.9 FM, Midland Mount Pleasant from the 2019 season. Um, one of the better games you and Ski had this year for football. Yes. Uh, we were left side of the press box, uh, ski was uh, ski was right next to me, and uh, that's about all I remember specifically. Outside of that, it was a one point game, and it was the second one point game we had had with Mount Pleasant this year that they lost. Um, 
they had they had an interesting year. Um, but yeah, it was at Mount Pleasant, and that was uh, or no, was that what was the game? It was at Mount Pleasant. Yeah, okay, that's what I thought. They just all blend together. But that no, that was a great game, great game, one of the few great games we had this year. Yeah, they were. It was something undefe- like both undefeated going in, and then uh, Midland wins, and the Chemex win the North title as a result. So that was uh, yeah from twenty nineteen. Blake, next week on Tuesday, uh, Michigan State and Michigan in college football from 2009. Uh, Spartans beat uh, undefeated Michigan in overtime. And I guess, you know, self-admittedly being a Michigan State slap, I, of course, remember this game. It was a Larry Caper touchdown uh, that that won it for Michigan State in the end. I think this game kind of gets lost when talking about the great Michigan-Michigan State games the last 15 years. Uh maybe just because it's 10 years ago, but I think this is a classic that a lot of Michigan State fans are going to enjoy going back to and could have been horror because they blew the lead late and allowed a touchdown with, like, what, like two seconds left in the game? So it could have very well been a terrible choke job, and Kirk Cousins didn't play especially well in this game, but it all worked out in the end. Yeah, it worked out because he was playing against Tate Forcier on the other side, so that probably had a lot to do with it. Uh, People forget. MSU's first consecutive wins over Michigan since 1967. Uh, so just chew on that for a second. And then some names in this game, Larry Caper, B.J. Cunningham, Blair White, Keyshawn Martin, Daryl Stoneham, Martavius Odoms. So a nice blast from the past for uh, for Michigan and Michigan State fans. And then uh, Brad, next week starts a, a new series of Loons broadcasts, some 2019 games. And we go back to a game against the Lugnuts that was a uh, that was pretty interesting for for a couple different reasons. You talking about that game on the road? You're the one that's planning it, so I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, so that was that was a 12 run, 15 hit game, I think, in Lansing. There were four ejections. One of them was John Shoemaker. Uh, Blake was there, and uh, yeah, that game was was wild. I think it was the I think it was a getaway day too or the day before a getaway day, and we came back to the ballpark, and everyone was like, yo, I saw in the paper that uh, that John Shoemaker got ejected. What happened? And it was like, well, three guys got ejected too, and Shoe. And, yeah, it was it was wild. That was a really fun game. Tons of scoring. Yeah. Looked like the Loons were going to blow them out, and then it would turn into a quick game, and then the Lugnuts kept I, I got to look back and see who the umpires were, were because, I mean, they were trash that day. And oh boy, it, I mean, at that point, at that point in the season, Loon's best record in the Eastern Division, and they were kind of the uh, they had a target on their back. They weren't liked by the rest of the league. Um, they were kind of the the mean guys of the league for whatever reason, no specific reason in that. And on, add on top of that the fact that this was an umpire crew that the coaching staff was not in agreement with at all from opening day on and you combine those two things in a in a heated game and it was yeah it was crazy uh and then uh next saturday blake will get uh dow and heritage it's always been a heated rivalry on the girls side in high school basketball in recent years and uh a great game between between those two story programs another meeting of the the tyson delong era in the, in the dow heritage rivalry that's right it's kind of like uh 
Dean Smith, Coach K nowadays, <laughs> right? Uh, it's a new rivalry, but this was a phenomenal game. Uh, Heritage was undefeated at the time. They went on to win the state championship. Dow comes in as the underdog, despite being loaded with talent and was probably the favorite in every other game that they played. But that was a game Molly Davis played really well, hit some seriously deep threes, especially in the first half. Uh, one of the best high school games I've called since I've been here. Yep, and for for whatever reason, uh, that was one of the games after I had, had uh, stopped calling high school games with you guys and Ski had taken that seat that uh, I went and uh, watched that game myself, and that was that was a great game, and uh, you could tell a lot of passion on both sides when, when those two met that night for sure. And a couple more that are coming up uh, a little bit later as the throwback series has kind of become our way of bringing sports to everybody listening on 100.9 FM. We'll have Michigan State's Big Ten championship game on the football side, some of the classics that Brad had a chance to call with Travis between Northwood and SVSU this season on the hardwood, which are great. And then, of course, Jalen Watts-Jackson going to make an appearance uh, down the road in the throwback series as well. Just need to say his name. You don't even need to say anything else, and everyone knows uh, what you're talking about. So um, that's all I've got, guys. Anything uh, anything else that you want to want to get in this episode before we part ways for a little while? I don't know if we have any more Michigan fan listeners after going through some of those throwback games. <laughs> well, we are a Michigan State affiliate, so... <laughs> uh, but uh, that's it. Uh, that's it for this week's episode. We don't know when we'll sit down and do another one again, but hopefully we'll have uh, maybe good news about sports to, to talk about again. If not, we'll, uh, we'll kind of take a temperature of the landscape. So that's it for uh, this week's edition or this episode of the Offseason Podcast. Go back. Oh yeah, kick it!